Welcome to Take Up and Read, a bite-sized Bible study podcast on the Sunday Catholic Mass readings. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. This Sunday is the third Sunday of Lent in year C. Remember that the Old Testament readings during Lent are not specifically chosen to harmonize with the Gospel readings. Instead, the first readings highlight important events in salvation history, hearkening back to the early catechumenate, when candidates would undergo an intense catechesis in the basics of the faith in preparation for baptism at Easter. Our first reading is Exodus chapter 3, verses 1-8 through 8 and 13-15, through 15, the famous account of the calling of Moses from the burning bush. Moses has been living in Midian for 40 years after being exiled from Egypt for killing an Egyptian taskmaster. In verse 2, we are told that an angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in fire flaming out of a bush. What takes place is a conversation between Moses and the Lord God mediated through an angel. This dynamic occurs elsewhere in the Old Testament, for instance, in Genesis 22, verses 15 through 18. Moses will indeed see the Lord in a limited way later on in his story. See Exodus 33, verses 18 through 23 and chapter 34, verses 5 through 9. Whereas here Moses is afraid to look at God, he will later ask, Please let me see your glory. Fire is a common image for the Lord in Scripture. See paragraph 696 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The whole people of Israel will encounter the Lord under the auspices of fire at Exodus 19, verse 18, and chapter 24, verse 17, on the same mountain. In Deuteronomy 4.24, Moses tells the people that the Lord your God is a consuming fire. The popular evangelist Bishop Robert Barron is fond of using this scene as a lesson on God's interaction with his creation. The bush, though on fire, was not consumed, just as God is active in the created world without overpowering or destroying its natural functionality. The classical formulation of this in Catholic theology is grace perfects nature, it does not overrule it. The Lord tells Moses that he is the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, a type of ancestral identification with precedent in the Near East, and similar to how he once identified himself to Isaac and Jacob. Verse 12, omitted in our lectionary selection, reveals that the purpose of the Exodus is not simply the liberation of the Israelites from Egyptian slavery, but freedom for the purpose of returning to worship of the true God. The description of the Promised Land as one flowing with milk and honey is repeated throughout the Exodus in conquest narratives. The end of this selection is the dramatic revelation of the divine name to Moses for the people. Alternatively, some have seen the Lord's reply, I am who am, as a refusal to be named. In some ways, it is both. God is the one being whose very existence is his essence, in the traditional formulation of St. Thomas Aquinas. As paragraph 206 of the Catechism says, This divine name is mysterious just as God is mystery. It is at once a name revealed and something like the refusal of a name, and hence it better expresses God as what he is infinitely above everything that we can understand or say. He is the hidden God. His name is ineffable, and he is the God who makes himself close to men. The Hebrew alphabet, 
ancient and modern, does not have vowels, so the divine name given in Exodus 3.14 is written as the four consonants YHWH, known in biblical studies as the Tetragrammaton. The Masoretes were a school of medieval Jewish scholars and scribes who perfected the art of copying the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures. The standard Masoretic text is still used to translate modern Bibles. It was the Masoretes who developed a system of markings in the Hebrew text to alert the reader to the correct vowel sounds for pronunciation. In the post-exilic period, Jewish piety came to see the name of the Lord as unpronounceable outside certain temple liturgies and only by the priests. When reading the scriptures aloud, the reader would say Lord, or instead, or Adonai in Hebrew. When the divine name is copied in biblical manuscripts, the markings used are for the word Adonai, not for the proper pronunciation of the Tetragrammaton, in order to alert the reader to say Adonai. This tradition is incorporated into most English Bible translations, which is why you see the word God or Lord spelled in small caps, denoting that the underlying text being translated is the Tetragrammaton. Incidentally, to incorrectly pronounce the Tetragrammaton with the vowel sounds for Adonai renders the name as Jehovah, a common mistake in some Christian circles. The ancient Greek translation known as the Septuagint renders the I am of Exodus 3.14 as ego eimi. This is the same wording used in the Gospel of John, which was composed in Greek, for Jesus' so-called I am statements. Two in particular are striking claims of divinity that would not have been missed by the discerning among his contemporaries. In John 8.58, Jesus claims to predate Abraham. Amen, amen, I say to you, before Abraham came to be, I am. In John 18, verses 3 through 8, the account of Jesus' betrayal by Judas, Jesus self-identifies to the band of soldiers with two I am statements, the first of which causes the guards to turn and fall, evidencing the power of this identification. Our psalm this Sunday is Psalm 103, a psalm of David extolling the Lord for his mercy. Verses 6-7 through seven refer to the Exodus events initiated in our first reading. The Lord secures justice and the rights of all the oppressed. He has made known his ways to Moses and his deeds to the children of Israel. Verse 8 is a quotation of Exodus 34-6, when the Lord passed before Moses. So the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love and fidelity. We referred to this incident last week when discussing Moses' appearance in the transfiguration of Jesus. This Sunday's second reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-6 through 6 and 10-12, through 12, where St. Paul also reflects on the lessons of the Exodus. This passage is in the context of warning the Corinthians to be cautious about partaking of meat sacrificed to idols before being sold in the market. See chapter 8. Paul does not prohibit this meat, but asks his readers to take care that they do not scandalize fellow Christians who might take offense. He refers to the cloud of God's presence which led and protected the Israelites through the desert, the parting of the Red Sea, the Lord's provision of manna, and the water struck from the rock at Meribah. 
There is a Jewish tradition that this rock accompanied the Israelites throughout their sojourn. Paul is reading the Exodus as Old Testament typology of Christ. The crossing of the Red Sea is a type of baptism. The deliverance from Pharaoh's army foreshadowing Jesus' deliverance from sin in the sacrament of baptism. Likewise, the Lord's provision of food and drink in the desert as sustenance on the way to the Promised Land foreshadows Jesus' provision of his body and blood in the Eucharist, our sustenance on the way to the heavenly Promised Land. This is the sense in which, in Paul's words, the rock was the Christ. In a more particular way, we might see in the rock the church which Christ, with Christ as its head, which was founded on Peter the rock, and which dispenses the sacraments to the faithful through the Holy Spirit. Paul's warning regarding those who suffered death by the destroyer is a reference to the incident in Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9, when the Israelites were struck with a plague of fiery serpents as punishment for their grumbling. Incidentally, the bitten Israelites are cured by looking upon a bronze serpent fashioned by Moses, which St. John sees as a type of the crucified Christ, who grants salvation to those who look upon his cross with a living faith. See John 3, verses 14 through 15. Paul's use of the term destroyer is a reference to the angel sent to strike down Egypt's firstborn in the final plague. See Exodus 12, verse 23. The concluding verses, 10 through 12, echo Jesus' warning to repent in this Sunday's gospel, as none of us are truly standing secure. As many Israelites did not complete the Exodus journey to Palestine, so many Christians stand in danger of not completing the race to eternal life. Our gospel this Sunday is Luke 13 verses 1 through 9, where Jesus tries to rouse the crowd out of their false confidence in their own righteousness. The murder of Galilean pilgrims coming to offer sacrifice in Jerusalem is not recorded outside of Luke's gospel but it is eminently believable given Pontius Pilate's famous cruelty. Judea was a particularly tumultuous province for the Romans to govern, as evidenced by the series of Jewish revolts in the first century AD that reached the level of open warfare. To maintain control, Pilate was prone to acts of barbaric tyranny. It is possibly related to the revolt of Judas the Galilean in 6 AD, which is mentioned in Acts 5.37. Jesus is likely asked to comment on the affair in order to elicit his opinion of Roman rule. The incident in Siloam is similarly not recorded elsewhere, but there is no reason to doubt its historicity. Jesus apparently detects a false sense of security in the people he is preaching to, believing they have escaped a similar fate because they are more upstanding than the victims of each tragedy. In response, Jesus preaches the parable of the barren fig tree, a plant associated with the covenant people of Israel in the Old Testament. The lesson is not, as Jesus teaches elsewhere, that earthly misfortune is not necessarily a sign of God's disfavor. Instead, Jesus convicts the crowd for their laxity in rejection of his messiahship and foretells the destruction of all Jerusalem as a consequence. But I tell you, if you do not repent, you will all perish as they did. As St. Peter wrote in his second letter, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some regard delay, but he is patient with you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus then is the vine dresser, patiently calling his people to bear fruit, but the reference to next year implies that time is running short. 
Recall, as we have discussed previously on the podcast, that Jerusalem was eventually destroyed by the Romans after a revolt in AD 70. Finally, while this parable has no parallel in the other synoptic gospels, it provides a gloss on the account of Jesus cursing a fig tree for not bearing fruit in both Matthew 21:19 and Mark 11:13. That's all we have time for today. Let's conclude with a collect from this Sunday's mass. O God, author of every mercy and of all goodness, who in fasting, prayer, and almsgiving have shown us a remedy for sin, look graciously on this confession of our lowliness, that we, who are bowed down by our conscience, may always be lifted up by your mercy. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening. To learn more and find resources, visit studycatholic.com. And please tell your friends about the show and leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. Thanks again and God bless.